about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hi, I'm Nishan, and uh, today's first Bible reading comes from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 1 to 5. It's on page 720 of your Pew Bibles. So it's Isaiah 44, verse 1 to 5. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. Good evening, my name's Zan, if I haven't met you. The second reading will be from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. It's on page 1079. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Father, we've heard your word read. Uh, Bless us as we now think about it in more detail. and Teach us to be your people inspired by the gospel of your grace. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, It will not reflect particularly well on me to admit it, but I'm quite fond of a movie from a few years ago called The Kid. Uh, It stars Bruce Willis. Has anybody seen it? Anybody remember it? The Kid. Shelley. Me and Shelley. Lots of opportunity for in-jokes tonight. Uh, It tells us stars Bruce Willis, and it tells the story of a man called Russ, who suddenly finds himself looking after his eight-year-old self, who has time-travelled there. Um, Sounds sounds good, right? (laughs) Uh, At first, he sees his earlier self, uh, the kid, as he calls him, as just kind of pathetic, and so naive, and innocent, and and silly. Uh, There's a great moment, for example, when the kid's outside, and he goes, look at the moon, and he's like, It's just the moon, you know. Um, Older Rusty feels he's just so much wiser. And he really ought to teach young Russ a thing or two about life, real life. But as the film unfolds, he starts to think that maybe, in fact, the kid has something to teach him. There's a beauty in the innocence and the dreams he has a beauty and enjoyment of life that he has lost. He starts to see that what he takes to be his own superior 
approach to life may not be anything of the sort. Uh, It might actually represent a loss of good things he once had, a surrender to a lesser vision of the world. At one point, after listing all the things his adult self has failed to do, uh, like you know, fly jets or get a dog called Chester, uh, little Rusty exclaims in disgust, I grew up to be a loser. Uh, now, I mention this movie uh, because, oh, I like it, but also because uh, I think the passage before us today from the book of Acts might have a similar effect on us. Initially, you know, we see this picture of the first Christian community, and it's kind of lovely, but also dreadfully naive. If you've got it open there, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, uh, the word for sincere in verse 46 is literally simple. They were simple-hearted, it says. But, you know, as we consider this passage more, it starts to ask awkward questions of us about what happened to our dreams and why we've settled for so little. How would our younger church self feel about us? Did we grow up to be losers? Well, let's have a look at this passage and remember how it all started uh, and see if it can just wake us up a little and perhaps call us back to good things we've lost lost sight of a little. Our passage follows on from the account, uh, which if you're here with us, we looked at last week, the account of the first sermon ever preached, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, uh, explaining that the amazing things that were going on were signs of the coming of God's Spirit, um, which God's Spirit, which Jesus, who, had been, who God had raised from the dead, was pouring out on those who believed in him. Uh, it's a bit of a weird sermon, uh, to be honest, but it... Amazingly, it was very effective. 3,000 people were converted. Uh, We see that in verse 41. Uh, That's unlikely to be repeated tonight. So, you know, well done, Peter. Um, And our passage follows on from that as a description of, you know, like a summary of the life of the first Christian community. And it's really beautiful. Have a look at it there, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Uh, Now, devoted is a strong word and an important one in this passage. It is actually used again, although it's it's obscured in our translations, but it's used again in verse 46, where it says they continued to meet together. It's actually the same verb, uh, and it means more literally they, they were devoted to being together. It carries a sense of dedication and focus and commitment They dedicated themselves to the life of this community, to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, and that fellowship particularly involved, it seems, breaking bread and prayers. Four ideas there. Let's make sure we understand them. First, the apostles' teaching. The earliest Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Presumably, this meant they worked at listening and understanding it, what the apostles were saying, how they were explaining what Jesus meant. They cared about what they were learning. At the very beginning, Christians were united around the teaching of the gospel, the apostolic proclamation and explanation of the gospel. Preaching, not a modern invention. Second, fellowship. 
The word fellowship sounds extremely daggy to us, I think. Does it sound daggy? It sounds daggy to me. Uh, it creates images, for me at least, of acoustic guitars and cardigans and people smiling at each other. I mean, it's not, actually nothing wrong with that. I mustn't, I mustn't insult the band. Um, hmm. uh, the word itself, though, fellowship, actually just means sharing. Uh, it, it just means kind of holding things in common, having things as common. It's, it's actually the root of the idea of community. Uh, community is about having things in common. It, it's, it's the unity and connectedness that comes from sharing things. And Luke tells us that the, the first Christians were just dedicated to this. I think that means they worked at expressing the unity that they had through their shared faith. They worked at it diligently. They didn't presume upon it or take it for granted. Now, it seems to have especially taken the form of breaking bread and prayers. Uh, prayers, probably not too difficult to understand, tricky to do, not too difficult to understand. Uh, we don't know exactly what these prayers were, but over the next chapters in Acts, we'll get a, a glimpse here and there. Breaking bread, uh, on the other hand, is, is most simply just a reference to eating meals together. Uh, in verse 46, we see that this happened in people's homes. Uh, the meals, though, were probably invested with meaning. Uh, some people think it, Luke's referring to the Lord's Supper. Uh, I'm not persuaded by that, but I'm not surprised it turned into the Lord's Supper because breaking bread in Luke's gospel, and that's Luke's former book, Jesus did that very deliberately with his followers, both in his ministry and then after his resurrection. And I have no doubt that this fellowship meal thing must have had a lot of a, a deep sense for the Christians. It was a moment of expressing their unity through Jesus. Yeah, that's not to say there was anything very mysterious going on here. At one level, it was just simple. Eating together expresses friendship and unity. It was an essential part of the life of the earliest church, and they worked at it. Well, how do you react to this first summary of the life of the earliest church. Does anything surprise you about it? Just kind of stop and think about these four things. You know, is there anything you think is missing? Uh, if somebody had asked you, what do you think would have been the first effects of the Holy Spirit on a group of people, what would you have said? We'll ponder that and come back to some of these things. Let's continue for now, though. Luke goes on to fill this picture out with more detail. Verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were being done by the apostles. As we look at the next chapters of Acts over the coming weeks, we're going to start to see more of the kinds of things that are meant here by miraculous signs and wonders. What seems to be the case, though, is that the Holy Spirit empowered the apostles to do things really very similar to what Jesus had been doing as a demonstration that here in this ministry and accompanying this message, God himself was at work in the world. And it got people's respect. Everyone was filled with awe, it says. Um, awe just means fear. It's just fear. They're filled with fear. Kind of respectful uh, awe. 
People experienced fear because they saw something incredible was happening, you know. Being part of or witness to this new community, it wasn't just fun and groovy feelings, good times. It was actually a little bit scary because it was clear that something serious and troublingly powerful was happening here. Well, Luke then continues to tell us about the communal life of this new group. Have a look, verse 44. And this is kind of even more shocking, perhaps, than the miracles sometimes. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. What was going on here? Well, we need to be careful. It's apparent from the following chapters that this was not a a permanent arrangement uh, in the sense of an absolute permanent rejection of private property or something. And they all embraced a form of kind of primitive communism. Uh, We'll see as we go that this sharing was entirely voluntary. Yet that only makes this first moment the more remarkable. Because Luke tells us quite seriously that everybody was in on it. They had everything in common. That is, they held all their possessions at the disposal of the needs of the rest of the community. I don't think it means they actually brought everything and put it in a big pile, you know, take what you need, but there was a sense in which my stuff is now available for use in the community. They provided for each other. And it seems that this, at this first moment, a key work of the Spirit was to generate an intense and generous mutual care for each other. This is another point we should really notice, isn't it? If you were with us at the combined service a few weeks back, Roger reminded us of the significance of the one and other passages in the Bible and how the Bible calls Christians to pay special attention to looking after each other. This is what we see here. It was clearly just totally obvious to these first believers that they had to look after each other, that Jesus had made them a community, he'd brought them together and that obviously had had practical consequences. They had to and they wanted to look after each other. It was just a no-brainer. Wow. Well, Luke concludes his description with a picture of a community in verse, uh, the next verse that was not this community. You know, they weren't languishing under the burdens of their responsibilities. They were just delighted and delightful. Verse 45 or 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As I mentioned before, the description in verse 46 there is, is, is richer than it comes across here. It's really like as one, they devoted themselves in the temple. They, 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 they did their dedicated work. It has a sense of just them really working at their new shared fellowship. They came to meet together and they met in their homes as well where they broke bread. If They weren't just a moderately committed Sunday gathering. Their community spilled out into the rest of their lives. And they loved it. 
They had glad and sincere hearts, Luke tells us. Isn't that actually a beautiful description? It does have a sense of innocence to it. As I mentioned before, sincere could be translated simple. Glad and, and simpl- gladness and simplicity of heart. You know, the thing was just uncomplicated for them. They just knew and felt that they were part of something wonderful. And they delighted in praising God for it and being, and, and being a blessing to each other. Which in turn seems to have been just irresistible. Irresistible. People constantly joined them and became Christians. Luke's careful to point out that at a deep level this was God's work, but it's also clear that this was a deeply attractive community. And of course it was, right? I mean, how often does anything like this happen? Where strangers are made such intimate friends that they sacrificially look after each other. Where people are energised and united around the pursuit of learning and truth. And where it is just so obvious that something special is going on. No wonder people want it in, right? This was something beautiful. Okay, well, what should we do with it? What should we do with this description of the first adventure of Christian community? How should we respond to it today? People sometimes respond by seeing this description as like a model for how the church should always be, pure and simple. So so that our job today is to try and recreate this to get rid of all the ways in which we've lost this simple purity and return to this primitive, perfect situation. I think that is a mistake, that approach to reading. I think it's a mistake because it misses the fact that what we have here is not actually a model. It's not a set of instructions for doing church. It's an account of the history of the church. A history that kept going and was meant to keep going. We actually can't recreate this situation in our context. For one thing, there aren't any apostles around. I mean, if there are, you should tell me, because they should be doing the preaching. But there aren't, you know. We can't do this. And nor should we want to. This is a record of what the Spirit in fact, did in those earliest days. But the church wasn't meant to freeze at that moment in time. Yet that is not to say that we shouldn't reflect on what we see here. This is an account, quite seriously, of what God the Holy Spirit did in the first moments of the life of the church. Uh, That ought to be interesting, don't you think? That ought to make us want to stop and reflect on the ways in which the church is different today and the changes that have come about and whether those changes are good ones or not. What we see here is not a model to copy, but it is a witness to us of what the Spirit's work looked like in those first moments. And as such, it can challenge us and ask questions of it today. It can challenge us and it can spur us on. You see, this is what the gospel did. And it can make us ask, are we expressing the truth of the gospel as we should be? It's like a point of contrast that can make us ask questions about ourselves. Okay then, let me suggest 
Four challenging questions I think this passage asks of us. Here we go. First one. How does our commitment compare to what we see here? They devoted themselves, this passage tells us, twice. They were dedicated to this new thing they'd become a part of, focused, committed, invested in it. Do we have the same kind of enthusiasm and commitment to what God is doing? And if not, why not? Sure, some of this was probably just a rush of initial enthusiasm that inevitably died down, but did it die down for any good reason? How does our commitment compare to what we see here? Second question, do we have the right priorities in our life as a community? This passage tells, doesn't, tell us, doesn't tell us everything about what the church is about, right? It doesn't. But it does tell us some things. And we should notice that this first community was especially focused upon these four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread together, and prayers. I think it's a fair question to ask, if any of those things are not as important to us, do we have good reasons for that? Two things stand out to me as especially worth thinking about. First, does prayer have a high enough priority for us? And second, are we working at expressing fellowship or community? You know, there just seems to have been a really clear sense among these first Christians that Jesus meant they were meant to be together. Physically, often, and in spirit, always. And that they were meant to work at that. Is that how, is that how we feel? Please note as well that it doesn't look like community was something that was just super easy for them. They just happened automatically. It was actually something they had to put energy into. They had to invest into. But they did it because that's what the gospel meant. Why should it be any different for us? Third question, do we care about one another in a way that is appropriate to the gospel? There is no avoiding the striking material generosity here. Uh, I don't think the way in which they express this is really available to us or appropriate for us today. And in fact, as we'll see over the coming weeks, this exact practice didn't last very long in the early church. When it comes to questions of practical and material care, there are all sorts of complexities we will need to think about, but that doesn't mean the same attitude and willingness should not be present among us. We mustn't hide behind the complications. Do we share the sense they had that we just we have an obligation to look after each other? Are we ready to be generous with our time and our money beyond what seems to be safe? Fourth question, and lastly, what kind of attitude do we have towards church? What kind of attitude do you have towards church? The attitude we see here is one that is endearingly innocent and just kind of positive. They praised God with glad and simple hearts. You get a sense that they just felt deeply privileged to be a part of this wonderful thing. 
and they were willing to suffer inconvenience and frustration for it if needs be. Well, how does that compare to our attitude to church? But, you know, here we see our problem, right? Don't we? And it's the same problem we have with everything about this passage. And it's a legitimate problem. We've lost our innocence. Or rather, it's been broken. It's been broken by the failures and disappointments of church. By people being exclusive or cruel. By divisions and conflict. By leadership being disappointing or worse. It's been broken by corruption and greed and pettiness, by sex abuse scandals and bickering and stupidity, and we can't go back to that attitude. We can't restore our innocence once it's been lost. Yet here we should make sure we remember something, I think. We should make sure we remember that it wasn't actually church that energised these first believers, was it? It wasn't church that made them glad and gave their hearts a simple purity. No, it was Jesus. It was Jesus who filled them with energy. Jesus and the news of what God had done in raising him from the dead and how that meant they were forgiven and restored, that is what drove them and energized them. And Jesus has not changed. He is the same for us as he was for them. He's the same for us as he was for them. He is just as good today as then. The church may have let us down. I'm sure it has. It certainly has let the world down. But Jesus has not. And he is just as inspiring and powerful as he was at this first moment. What this first adventure in Christian community should do, you see, is actually just point us back to Jesus. The problems come when we only look back as far as the first moments of the church and we focus only on what they were like and how we compare. You know, if that's all the questions we asked before do, then it's a mistake to ask them. If we just start to feel kind of burdened by it and how, how crap we are. If we could only try harder and be better. But it, 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 wasn't, it clearly wasn't burdensome for them, was it? Nor should it be for us. Rather, what the questions we're asking should do is, is not just drive us to try harder but drive us to rediscover the energy that animated them. Inspire us to look again at Jesus and rediscover what he truly means. That's how our living out of the gospel will become all it could be. You see, it's true that we cannot go back. We can't go back. Nor should we want to. This was just the first moment. It wasn't meant to be the be-all and end-all of church. There was and is much more for us to be and to do. Yet we don't need to leave behind the character and beauty of this moment. We don't need to leave it behind because the one who inspired them is the same 
yesterday, today, and forever. The same spirit that energized them is at work among us. The same gospel that energized them is the one that we believe. Jesus doesn't want us to be them. He wants us to be us and express the gospel as fully and clearly and beautifully in our time amongst our people as we can. And these first believers, if they do anything, what they ought to do is just remind us how good Jesus can be if we see him clearly. How wonderful it is, the gospel. And so to finish, can I just invite you to allow this passage, this brilliant moment at the outset of the life of the church, to inspire you to rediscover the freshness, the freshness that came from an unobstructed view of the gospel. You see, they were like this because they hadn't had any time for anything to get in the way. They could see clearly Jesus and what he meant. That's what inspired them. If we believe that this moment was a true moment, that it was indeed a work of God, the Holy Spirit, a true expression of the gospel of Jesus, then let's seek to rediscover the power that inspired it in our own time. Let's put aside the things that have obscured our view of Jesus, the hang-ups we have, the cynicism and bitterness that have grown up among us, and the unbelief that poses as wisdom. And let us get curious again about the gospel and ask ourselves again the basic questions. Who is Jesus? What has he actually done? What has God given us in him? And how should that change our life? That is a beautiful innocence, which is ours in the gospel. And if we are willing to do that, then I think we will see wonderful things. In fact, we may actually just start to see the wonderful things that are already happening among us. For this is what the gospel does. This kind of thing, this beautiful thing, this is what happens when people really get Jesus. And it is beautiful, isn't it? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these first believers and the work of your Spirit among them. And we thank you even more for what inspired them. Your Son Jesus, risen from the dead, the news of our salvation. And we ask that by your spirit, that truth would inspire us too to live lives of wonderful generosity and clarity and beauty in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au